Good morning. I'm reading from Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Thank you, Carleen. Please have a Bible open at Revelation chapter 5. We're going to be looking at that passage this morning as we finish off our series uh, looking through the message of the Bible. I'm calling this one The Saviour's Victory. You'll also find an outline in your order of service that might help you follow with us. For now, though, let's pray and ask God's help on His Word. Our God of mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, we pray that you would speak your eternal word to us that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I once got to see The Lion King. And I don't mean the movie, I mean the musical stage production. And it was absolutely incredible. And because I was born and grown up in Africa, as soon as the first strains of the first song started, I was a blubbering homesick mess. But it was fantastic. 
And I mentioned the musical version of The Lion King this morning for two reasons. The one is that in Revelation chapter 5, we actually have a Lion King. Uh, of course, he, this Lion King leaves poor old Simba in the shade. But there's another reason, and that's because of how visually stunning the show was. And the big difference between Disney's 1994 animated classic and the stage production was that where the, the, the movie tried to be sort of accurate to what the animals looked like, uh, but still in a way you could kind of relate to them. On the, on the other hand, the stage musical, they went for incredible mechanical props and creative dance movements so that you didn't just see the animals, but you felt them and you understood them. It really was an incredible sight to see. And so those, those dance movements and those props, they conveyed the, the ideas and the feelings of animals and lions and warthogs and antelope and hyenas in, in a way that was so much richer than just flat images are able to do. And they actually did something for you emotionally. Now, I think this is a bit like how we should approach apocalyptic literature in the Bible. Uh, we had a little bit of this a few weeks ago when we looked at Daniel chapter 7. We've got to be careful not to get bogged down with what the images are. And instead, we've got to ask, what do these images mean? And how do these images make us feel? That's actually the intention behind uh, all, all this visual amazement that John sees. Now, Revelation can feel a little bit like a roller coaster ride. There are all sorts of different ideas about what it's talking about and when these things are meant to happen. But I want to try this morning to demystify Revelation without a whole bunch of terms and conditions before we start. So let's agree just to let the text speak for itself today. However, I do sometimes feel that John should have taken a tip from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and put don't panic in big letters across the front of his book. Just with one addition, though. Don't panic because Jesus wins. And that's the big thing we've got to remember when we come to the book of Revelation. Don't panic because Jesus wins. Now, we've come to the end of our series in the, book of Rev or in, in the whole Bible about how the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus actually stand at the center of the entire message of Scripture. And we see that as early as the very first pages of Genesis. And we've, we've seen this clearer and clearer picture come into focus, both of who Jesus would be and also what he would do, and, and to realize that this is God's ultimate plan. And today we're in the last book of the Bible and the message hasn't changed. And what we find is that the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, it doesn't just make sense of the whole Bible, it actually makes sense of everything. So if you get lost this morning, remember this. The death and resurrection of Jesus makes sense of everything. And that's where we're going to be going today. Now, I've got to say that we've dropped into the middle of a vision which began back in chapter 4 of Revelation. Chapters 1 to 3, we actually preached on here before a couple of years ago. It's the seven letters to the churches. That's, that's basically scene one of the book of Revelation. Today we're into scene two, and it's this vision that John sees of the throne room of heaven. It's kind of like central command of the universe. And because we didn't read it, what I'd like to do for a moment is try and set the scene. So I'd like you to close your eyes. I mean, it's not going to be anything weird. Close your eyes. I'm going to describe it for you. If you're watching kids or if you worked a night shift last night, maybe keep your eyes open. But try and picture what John saw as I describe it for you. <clears throat> John sees the Lord God Almighty seated on the throne, 
looking like he was made of precious stones. From the throne come thunder and lightning. Around the throne is a rainbow. Around the throne are 24 other thrones. And seated on these thrones are 24 elders dressed in white with golden crowns on their heads. And in front of the throne are seven blazing torches. Also in front of the throne, there's a sea of crystal clear glass. Around the throne are also four living creatures, which look like one, a lion, secondly, an ox, thirdly, a man, and fourthly, an eagle. And each of them have six wings and are covered with eyes. And all of them together are caught up in a continual cycle of worship of the one who sits on the throne. Are you imagining that or something like it? Well, you can open your eyes. Because now we're with John in the throne room of heaven. <clears throat> Excuse me. I wonder if you've noticed as we went through that that some of the things John sees have got quite clear Old Testament echoes. For example, the rainbow, it, it calls to mind God's covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, where he said he's never going to destroy the world like that again. Uh, the 24 elders, it reminds us of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. And we're going to see in a moment how chapter 4 and 5 actually bring Old and New Testament together in, a, in an important way. The thunder and lightning, that's, well, that sounds like God's presence at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, where God's people went and received God's law from the mountain, from God. The seven torches, we're told, represent the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're told that in back, in back in chapter 1 as well. Seven, uh, all the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. Seven is a number of perfection. But this, these seven torches also look a lot like the lampstand in the temple, uh, sometimes called the menorah. This also means the sea might not be an ocean at all, but also related to the temple. You see, in the temple, there was a massive wash basin made of bronze, uh, and it was actually called the Bronze Sea. But th there are also reasons to believe that th the sea represents the way the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, uh, and, and the waters themselves became like glass on either side. There's also reasons to believe it represents a transparent barrier between the world and God because God is so holy. So there's the throne and the sea and then everything else. And that's important to know. Some of these images have lots of different layers to them depending on how far down you dig. But what's clear is that the Old Testament echoes here are shot through the whole thing. The living creatures, they seem to represent the, the whole created order. The eyes represent a divine wisdom all eyes in Revelation are always about wisdom, and they here represent wisdom, divine wisdom given to them, so they fulfill the purpose that creation was originally meant to fulfill. They, they know what to do, and that's to praise the Creator forever and ever and ever. That's why the creation of Genesis is kind of mashed together with uh, the scene from Isaiah chapter 6 with the six-winged seraphim. And the words that they use are the same, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We could go a lot deeper still. In fact, Daniel chapter 7 that we looked at a few weeks ago, the Son of Man and the Lamb, there's a lot in common with those two guys. And the progression of both visions is almost exactly the same. Ezekiel chapter 1 is also there. And it's influencing what John sees in very significant ways. 
But this scene is important because it sets up what we're going to see in chapter 5. So let's look now at chapter 5 and see what happens with the one seated on the throne. I'd love you to have a Bible open with me at chapter chapter 5 of Revelation. Follow with me from verse 1. This is our first heading. Tragedy. No one is worthy to open the scroll. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So the vision turns from kind of majesty in chapter 4 to tragedy in chapter 5. And it invites us to ask two questions. The first question is, what is the scroll actually meant to be? What's it about? The second is, why is John so upset that a scroll can't be opened? Well, to understand the scroll, we first got to consider who's holding it. It's in the hand of the one on the throne. That means it belongs to God. To help us understand further, John's scroll, the scroll he sees, is written on both sides, and it's sealed with seven seals. Now, to someone in John's day, that would have sounded a lot like a Roman last will and testament, because it was usually written on the scroll, it was usually summarized on the back, and then it had to be signed and sealed by seven witnesses uh, to make it binding. So it would be appropriate then to understand the scroll as representing something belonging to God, which must be both revealed and executed, like a will after a person has died. It's, uh, it's executed to determine who gets to receive that person's wealth. And only one appointed person, of course, was allowed to unseal the will, reveal its contents, and execute the wishes of the testator. That's kind of what the scroll is all about. I think that helps us to understand, then, why John is so upset. Because the Lord God Almighty has something to reveal, something to give from his throne of power and authority at the very center of the universe. The the destiny of the universe is contained in that scroll. And no one, not, not John, not any of the 24 elders, not any of the living creatures, not the mighty angel, no one is found worthy to reveal the contents of the scroll. And so it seems like the destiny of the universe is is destined to remain secret forever. It's tragic, and it's tragic because it shows how sin has corrupted everything. But then in verse 5, an entirely new character breaks onto the scene. This is our second point. Victory, the lion is worthy. And John is told that there's no need to be sad anymore. I'd like you to follow with me from verse 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he is conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So 
the Lion King has arrived, and he is worthy. And it's worth noticing, again, the Old Testament references here. The Lion of Judah takes us all the way back to the end of Genesis, where Jacob was blessing his 12 sons. And he says to his son Judah in Genesis 49, we'll put this bit up on the screen for you. He said, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouches as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter, that's a ruling scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples or the nations. Now, Judah, of course, was the tribe of Israel's kings. King David was of the tribe of Judah. And there was a promise here of a great fulfillment for that tribe of a particular member of that tribe, and for far-reaching rule, rule over the nations. But he's also called there the Roots of David. Now, this should take us back to 2 Samuel 7 that we looked at a number of weeks ago, about the Messiah being David's son who would rule on David's throne forever. But it also touches on Isaiah chapter 11. And to understand this, we've got to remember that David's father's name was Jesse. And Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Now, that should help us to understand about all those eyes that we heard about on the Lamb. Uh, that he has uh, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, seven obviously being number of perfection. God's spirit is on the root of Jesse, the root of David. And of course, again, just to underline Isaiah 11 verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And the point is that the Lion King is none other than the king God has been promising all the way through the Bible, who would be both a a ruler and a rescuer for God's people. He is the one who God's people and even the whole universe has been waiting for, and he's worthy because he has conquered. And so with breathless anticipation, John wipes away his tears And he turns to watch the Lion King enter the room. He's looking forward to the scroll being opened and the destiny of the universe disclosed. And so he turns and looks and something doesn't seem quite right. Because what he sees is not a lion at all, but he sees a lamb. And even more, the lamb looks like it's been killed. But it's not dead because it's still doing stuff. But the lamb looks like he's been given a fatal injury. Now, if we've been reading our Bibles so far, we would know that the lamb has got to do with sacrifice, with a sacrificial substitute given to turn away the judgment of God and to free God's people from slavery to sin. And so we put together these Old Testament images, the royal lion of Judah and the eternal son of David and the sacrificial lamb, and you know, we can only conclude that it's pointing to one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he can wear all these hats, as it were. 
And in fact, the lamb standing alive when it looks like it's been killed, that should make us think all the way back to the first message in our series, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God first revealed his promise of a rescue. And he said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, in achieving victory, Satan's head would be crushed, even though the serpent crusher himself would be injured in the process. It's no wonder the lamb looks like he's been slain. And of course, this is exactly why John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus walking by the Jordan, he didn't cry out, there goes the Lion of Judah. He didn't go, there goes the Son of David. In fact, it took a blind man in Jericho to say that. He said, John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Jesus. And it's something worth bearing in mind that in the Bible, Jesus seems to carry the marks of his sacrifice even after his resurrection in his glorified body. Thomas can still put his hands in the nail marks, still put his his hands in the spear mark on the side. And I think this is also showing us that the marks of Jesus' sacrifice are going to be visible for eternity. That's because they are defining marks of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. It's like that old hymn, crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side in wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. He is and always will be the lamb who was slain. And so it's out of all creation in verse 7. It's this lamb who goes up to God and the lamb who takes the scroll from his hand. He alone is worthy because through his death, his sacrificial death, he has defeated sin and death and Satan himself. Let's get on to our third point. And I've called it eulogy, so it rhymes with tragedy and victory. Um, but also because eulogy is what literally means a good word or a word of praise. We're used to it being uh, something said at a funeral. Here the lamb only looks like he's died. And there's a eulogy in heaven for him. When the lamb takes the scroll, the mood in the throne room changes instantly from, from overwhelming despair to overwhelming joy. And John hears three different songs in heaven sung in praise of the lamb. The first song tells us why the Lamb is worthy and what his conquering achieved. Look at me at verse 8. When he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Notice here two very important things that the the Lamb's victory achieved. The first thing is that he's worthy because his death ransomed people for God. People from all over the world, from every language and tribe and nation and tongue. A few weeks ago, there was that that news story of um, the Aussie cricketer, Stuart McGill, uh, who was kidnapped and held for ransom 
If his captors were paid a specified sum of money, they would release him. And that's the kind of idea that's going on here. In a similar way, the lamb's sacrifice has paid the price to release the captives. People who are captive to sin, release them back into God's possession from all peoples and all ethnic groups on the earth. That's the first thing. His death has ransomed people for God, so he's worthy. Secondly, the lamb is worthy because his death has made all of these people, these ransomed people, into a kingdom and priests to God who shall reign on the earth. And you know, this sounds an awful lot like what was lost in Eden, what the original intention in the garden was. Mankind ruling over God's world under him and actually mediating God's presence to the world as image bearers of God. Actually, that's what a priest does. A priest mediates God to God's people, God's world. And so this is about achieving both rescue and restoration of everything that was damaged in Genesis chapter 3. And so the lamb is proved worthy. The second song is quite interesting because these are words we've heard before if we've been reading from chapter 4 right the way through. Revelation chapter 5, 11. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, these are virtually the same words we heard in chapter 4. End of chapter 4, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, I think this must have made John do a double take. Because the Bible's very clear. Only God gets the worship. And suddenly here, the whole universe is worshiping the Lamb the same way they worship God. So the lamb can't simply be the ultimate sacrifice or just the lion of Judah or just the root of David. He must be one with God himself. He is worthy to receive and execute what belongs to God by virtue of what his death has achieved, but also because his identity is tied up in God himself, the Father, God Almighty. And then the third and final song actually helps to underline this idea, where both the Lord on the throne and the Lamb together are recognized as deserving of the same praise. So verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures agreed. They said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And it's a glorious, glorious picture. And it's a glorious picture of what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross. Now, I said at the beginning of today's passage that the point is really that Jesus makes sense of everything. We've got to realize that when we read the book of Revelation, we're not starting at point A in in chapter 1 and finishing at Z in chapter 22. What we've got in Revelation is actually the same events unfolding multiple times with different emphases and different things going on. 
It's not really a book which start, just starts at the beginning and finishes at the end. Somebody's described it as actually like a series of spirals uh, as, as, the, as the, the story unfolds. And so that's why in chapter 4 and 5, we actually have the whole story of Revelation. We have the end already in chapter 5. And it's a picture of the cosmic significance of what the death of the Lord Jesus Christ has achieved. And these two chapters actually put together major Old Testament landmarks, like we had with the rainbow and, and the sea, the temple imagery, along with major New Testament things, like the number of elders around the throne being representative of the 12 tribes of, of Israel and the 12 apostles, or the bringing in the whole, all the nations into God's kingdom. That's very much a New Testament thing. And it's to show that the death of Jesus actually stands at the center of the whole of the Bible. It's what the whole Bible is pointing towards. The cross is what makes sense of the entire Bible. But it also does more than that, because this is a cosmic picture of the end of everything. And we find that there, Jesus Christ and his death, the lamb who was slain, is still at the very center of absolutely everything. The goal of the history of the universe is the whole universe ringing with the praises of the Lamb who was slain. That's where it's all heading. And of course, there is judgment as the seals are opened in the, in the following chapters. This, the judgment we discover is visited on Satan and his followers and all who continue to reject Jesus, all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. But it doesn't change the end of the story. Jesus will occupy the central place in the universe because he is and will always be the lamb who was slain. And so actually, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ makes sense of everything. All of us, I think, sitting in this room have lived through defining moments in world history. Um, depending on how old you are, that might be the Second World War or the Vietnam War or the Sexual Revolution or the Cold War, the falling of the Berlin Wall or 9-11 or the GFC or COVID-19. Defining moments in world history, we're told. But all of these pale into insignificance compared to how the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ defines world history. And, you know, we're finishing the series here because we need to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ isn't just at the center of the Bible's message, but he's at the center of everything. In fact, he only makes sense of everything. Um, I heard about an interesting meme this week, and this is yet another reason why you shouldn't take social media seriously. Uh, I wonder if anyone's heard of the cheese of truth? must be just me okay. and, and my wife. <laughs> um, there's a bit of a thing going around on social media where guys take, I think it's a joke, they take a piece of Swiss cheese, you know, with the holes in, and they put it over a page, and they, they read the words that come through the holes, and they think about what, what message that might be saying. As I said, another reason just not to take social media seriously. But I think in a similar way, we've got to remember that the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the filter that we have to put over absolutely everything and see everything, the Bible, the world around us, our own lives, through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
His death and resurrection answer our questions about meaning and purpose and about the future of our worlds. And so I've got to ask you this morning, if Jesus is at the center of the Bible and he's at the center of the history of the universe, is he at the center of your life? Is he at the center of your conversations, of your relationships, of your hopes and dreams, of your plans and your aspirations, your desires for your loved ones, at the center of your sense of identity and self-worth? Friends, if Jesus is at the center of the Bible and the universe, he's got to be at the center of your life. So today, perhaps, the end of this series is a great time for us all to hit the reset button, maybe for the first time, and make Jesus the very center of our lives. And it will be worth it, because ultimately the Lamb is worthy, and it is something worth praising him for, forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Father God, we praise and worship you together with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit this morning. And Father, we pray that as he is revealed to be the center of the universe, may he also be the very center of our lives, that we might be those very people who are ransomed by the blood of the Lamb and made into a kingdom and priests to you who shall reign on the earth. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. Amen. We're going to move towards the end of our service now by